Last week, it was a family affair here on Let's Talk Supply Chain. Allison and George Fowler, the supply chain couple, joined me to talk about how they solve supply chain challenges together, even though they sometimes work for competitors. For the full episode, go to podcasts at letstalksupplychain.com and you'll be looking for episode 95. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes-Humphrey, and each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. This episode was produced in collaboration with Border Buddy, the most innovative online customs platform out there. And here is what Graham, the founder of Border Buddy, has to say. More and more companies are looking to expand their reach into global markets, but most don't know where to start or don't have the time to figure it out. Border Buddy sees the struggle and has found a way for you to integrate customs into your e-commerce site, allowing you peace of mind when selling to customers in other countries. Your customers will know exactly how much the costs are to import their order from you to their door in real time. And just imagine what that will do for your business and your sales. Visit us and sign up for 10% off your first clearance at borderbuddy.com slash let's talk supply chain. Hello and welcome back to Let's Talk Supply Chain. So we are getting ready to go into another new year full of hopes, dreams, and even more advancements in supply chain to come. This is our final episode of 2019, and I have spent hours combing through our 52 episodes that we have released over the last year to bring you the best of our best episodes. If you hear something you like and want to check out the full episode, make sure to go to podcasts at letstalksupplychain.com, and in the show notes of this episode, we will guide you to the full episode. Before we get get into what is going to be released on this episode, let's get to the question of the week. So if you listened to last week's episode, you know that the question we asked about your predictions for supply chain over the next five years blew up on us and we needed to um, bring this question to you in two parts. So last week's episode has part one and now we're going to get into part two. So we asked you what your crazy counterintuitive predictions for supply chain for the next five years is going to be. So Demo Perez, from my Latin American point of view, Chinese giants, Ali, JD, etc., moving into the region to consolidate operations closer to the market. Johan Strom, in the next few years, consumers will realize what impact fast deliveries will have on supply chain and reliability. James J. Curtis, supply chain will become more like Uber in the fact that they will match the demand of the consumers to the supply of the farmers and raw materials. Then next we have Amy Charette. Great question. I hope you'll see a move towards economical and environmentally friendly solutions for 80% of the repeatable items such as produce available weekly without packaging designed to your preferences. That's a good one. Ryan, decentralized storage of MTS goods at private citizens' home near points of uh, consumption 
Julie Shum, if you're asking for counterintuitive, that would mean more personalized, low-tech delivery in all parts of the supply chain. Joby says, machine learning, blockchain, SaaS, IoT, and AI. Timothy Dooner over at FreightWaves, he says, massive consolidation in the 3PL and carrier space driven by compressed rates and enhanced pressures of delivering on consumer expectations due to the Amazon effect. Chris, he says the two obvious ones, the combination of AI and blockchain will play more of a dominant role. Mohammed, a lot of mergers and acquisitions taking place. There are a lot of small players who can't compete. Sujit says it's not lights out supply chain anymore. It's lights on supply chain lit up by visibility provided by digitalization of businesses and will provide the logistics service user the capabilities to intervene into logistics execution. Inmar says Amazon and Tesla will both be profitable. Oh, no, sorry. That was Bruce Anderson. And Inmar says the need to automate fulfillment will drive a need to outsource returns. If you missed my episode with Inmar, they um, talk about the the reverse logistics process. And you're going to want to go and check that one out. Derek says, I'm predicting that the application of technology and supply chain will bring immense improvements in forecasting, so much so that secondary outlets like Ross, TJ Maxx, and Marshalls will go out of business. Wow, that's a good one. Daniel Barnes, better forecasting with little, no waste, greater greater levels of transparency and audit trails within supply chain networks. Sagar says, fastest order delivery rate, complete transformation, um, from agile to agile, cheaper manufacturing costs, ease to source and procure, ease to maintain. Then Steven says, Amazon will develop its own driverless delivery fleet to deliver customer orders within two hours in most regions of the US. Walmart will have pickup locations near their stores. And um, <clears throat> Ramacharandran says next five years we'll see the emergence of digital command and control center for transport and logistics operations with minimal human intervention. Bonnie says for produce in home on demand ripening of produce with ethylene gas supplied along with produce to the consumer. Over on Instagram, Edson says the use of micro deposits and the possibility of withdrawing their collection at collection points along their way home should be massively expanded in large centers of Brazil. Today, or sorry, in Brazil today, this is already happening. Again, for the rest of their comments, please go to listeners corner at letstalksupplychain.com. And I also link to all of the conversations on LinkedIn, plus connecting you to each one of these uh, supply chain professionals that have uh, commented on this question. So thank you to everybody who commented. This was a massive, massive question. And it was so amazing to hear all of all of the predictions and really see where everybody thinks the industry is going. So in this episode, you're going to hear from various people that have been on the show over the last year. You're going to hear from Savvy Technologies, Nizuko in our Woman in Supply Chain series. She built her own logistics company in South Africa, despite all the odds. Jonathan Briggs about the cost to ship versus the cost to serve. Mercado Labs about shining light into the dark corners of supply chain. You're going to find out how the trade squad began. Also, containers on revolutionizing freight forwarding. 
Algo about the future with AI, Hugo about simplifying supply chain, Brian Glick about blockchain, Kathy Fulton about how our supply chain expertise can help nonprofits, Demo Perez about Panama being the next big logistics hub, Michael about uh, how he is making pallets out of coconuts. That one was a really popular one. Inmar about reverse logistics, Nicole Vernkin about challenges in her career from not only men, but women as well. Craig Fuller of Freightwaves telling us about the story behind the brand. And finally, Howard Berg shows us how to retain more information faster. In one of the research or in one of the articles that I read from Savvy, um, it really caught my attention because it talked about Netflix being a good model for supply chain visibility. Can you talk about that? Sure. It's kind of a model of how technology has enabled them to do that. So it used to be kind of batch mode. You get mailed the movie and then you watch it and you mail it back again. And it took a week to get it, and it took a week to return it. And then they started applying big data type technology that combined both real time, which allows people now to watch any streaming content pretty much anywhere they want to. And so that requires a massive scalable platform to be able to do that. And then they've also put together this notion of a central location to find everything you want to know about what Netflix offers. Here's every content, and that's analogous to shippers and manufacturers having a operation center where they can see every shipment at every time and have it be exception-driven to say, highlight the ones I need to care about here. And so this notion of taking all this transactional data and then putting it all together requires really advanced platforms but that's not all they've done. So that part's pretty straightforward. The other part they've done is they've taken all of this transactional data and they've analyzed it with machine learning technology. And that's why they're pretty good at telling you, you like this movie, you'll probably like this movie too. History is a pretty good predictor of what's going to happen in the future. And that's the exact same technology platform that we use to capture this transaction-level data to provide real-time information, but also deep historical data mining to tell them some things about their business they didn't know. That is specific to them. So that's what has made us to be um, outstanding and you know, regarded as one of the promising logistics companies in, 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 in the country. Amazing. And you invested in your people. Yes. You took them on that road trip, you educated them, and you invested in them. Yes. And I think that that also makes a big difference, especially for women in the industry, you know, for them to do the experience, have that experience, and like you said, not just be on pen and paper. Yes. So I love that. And, you know, that is a really great way of investing in your people and showing that you're you yourself is committed as well. So you talked about being in the banking sector and you talked about the decision to go into supply chain at a very maybe risky, maybe tr challenging time. 
Can you tell us a bit about that decision making? You know, what is the supply chain industry like in South Africa? Like you said, I guess it's less technical, you know, more manual, that kind of thing. Maybe walk us through that decision that you made to take that challenge head on and go into supply chain anyways. Um, you know, it was not a decision to uh, an easy decision to take. One, banks are first class. Everything is system based, you know, um, like you have banking in North America. That's how our banks are in South Africa. But logistics is different. So it was um, a, a serious mind shift in terms of um, how one does business. Um, um, so I had to unlearn quite a few things um, that I learned in, in the banking sector. Um, though at the beginning, I wasn't sure whether I should leverage on that um, 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 knowledge, um, you know, and bring it into the logistics. But then um, I thought about it a bit and I was like, okay, I first need to earn my place in the industry before I bring out, say, innovation uh, into the logistics space. Um, it was very difficult, I must say, in the beginning. I mean, even the way you present your your business, it, it's different. It's just two completely different worlds. Um, uh, the first three years, I always tell people it was more like a feasibility study. You know, I was learning everything around um, logistics. And I, that helped me. You know, I tell people all the time that what has kept me going all these years is knowledge. I had to get as much knowledge as I could at the beginning and build a very solid foundation. As a woman, I could not afford to have a, 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 a foundation that is shaking because already I was not um, um, trusted enough to be able to carry through. So I had to acquire knowledge. How did I do that? I, I had to research more about the, the logistics industry, um, uh, look for information from 50 years back until now. And then from there, I had to look at the recent years, um, hence the trip that I told you about. So I then had to discard some of the information that was no longer relevant and use the first-hand information. Um, so that's, that's just how I managed to sort of build it from scratch, I would say. Because now even the big logistics companies in the country, um, whenever they bring us on board, they, they, they don't only work with us simply because uh, they have partnered with a female-owned business, but they're interested more on the innovation side that we bring into the business. And it's, it's on real time, it's practical, and it's more on African issues. For instance, I'll make an example um, about um, uh, when you drive a truck to um, our neighbor country, I would mention one, Zimbabwe. I'm not sure if you know it. It's not really a great country in terms of infrastructure. And we've got an app that would detect everything around the truck um, um, 100 kilometers away. Um, so it would give me a signal when there is a human interaction on the outside of the truck, you know, because by then you've got to be alert. It's either there's a robbery that is about to take place or fatigue of the driver, or anything like that. Whereas uh, the big logistics companies, they only have a um, system that is talking about the load, but not the truck in itself. And the risk is around the truck, not so much the load. Uh, things like tire best, you know, um, sometimes um, um, 
when the truck is moving to cross across the border um um the the the, the what they always face is as is, is theft is um sometimes delay at the borders sometimes it's it's just human interaction maybe the drivers because we always send two drivers so it's all of those things so it does tell me when the truck is not stable so that's how we've managed to protect our goods inside the truck so that um solution is well received by the industry so now everyone is asking us about that um, um information and that's how we've managed to 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 stay on the course and you know um uh, move with the big guys at the same time is because of a recent article that you wrote it caught my eye i thought it was very thought provoking and it talks about a lot of aspects of this that i think that we need to bring to more people's attention so what challenges were customers facing and coming to you with that led you to writing that article yeah yeah absolutely i appreciate referencing the article and it's obviously a topic i'm passionate about uh it felt like the tail end of 17 and all of 18 and the conversation continues to happen as we start out 19 is brands talking about how they get to a two to two to three day delivery. And it's really the challenge the customers were facing in the balancing act of the consumer expectations of speed and, and how long it takes to get to them. And also the, the rising cost uh, that they would be forced to, to pay if they invested in faster transits and things of that nature. So um, so there's this race for faster deliveries. You know, the, the days of seven to 10 day free shipping is, is no longer acceptable. So we, we have the brands that are trying to pivot to, to an experience that is targeting a two to two to three day but that's a huge leap right now so they're they're making incremental moves and and so they're they're you know conversations like maybe a five-day network or a four-day network and and then all of a sudden as soon as they do that they look at the costs associated with the logistics that, that come with that and they get sticker shock and it becomes this barrier so the questions were you know throughout the year and like i said continue to happen are you know what what are some ways we can do do this? And our thoughts when, when we were looking at it is they may already be spending this in other areas than the shipping costs because the soon as we, you know, at five days seems to be this magic mark where, where call centers start to blow up. And when, when shipments take longer than five days, the, the number of interactions from customers goes up exponentially. Then they start needing to do credits and appeasements and um, returns go up, all these different factors. So th there's this, this cost that's happening that the logistics team is not measuring. And so we brought it to their attention to say, maybe we should bring customer service in, into conversations with us and understand what, what is really happening on the back end. And, and maybe that expense could be shifted from back end to the front end. So that's really what drove the, the writing of the article. You bring up a really good point because I think that the industry needs to be more efficient. We need to embrace this new innovation. And, you know, one might not be right for one company, but the other one might be. And to take a look at how that's going to, you know, change your supply chain, change your business, change the mindset of your customer of how they look at you and how you're looking at supply chain to make their life easier as well. So one of the things that I, when I was doing my research for this interview, I, you know, took a look at your website and I was, I was, you know, reading up on who you are. And one of the things that you guys talk about is about bringing light to dark spots of supply chain, which I thought was, yeah. you know, very, very interesting. So can you explain that to us? And what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly what um, a great, thank you for doing the research, by the way. 
But that's exactly how I feel about it. You, you have to remember, especially in, in the platform that I build, which connects buyers and sellers, that when you're buying product from someone who lives 8,000 miles away, uh, comes from a completely different culture, speaks a different language, it's, it's almost impossible to gain full transparency to what's happening over there. And, and people try, you know, they take a couple trips over a year, but it's not the same. I mean, you're, you're not actually knowing what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis with your factories or your products or et cetera. So what we do is we use technology to shine lights into those dark corners so that the buyer can fully understand what's happening 8,000 miles away at all times. So the three carriers, three carriers we focus on uh, there, Sarah, that, that are important, I think, to importers uh, the first one is what we call social transparency. So you want to make sure that you're doing uh, business with people who are on the up and up and they're not employing kids and they're not polluting the environment to the extent that you can know that you're doing business with people that uh, have good social standards in mind. That's important. And so that's one area that we shine bright lights on. And then the second one is supply chain. And so you want to make sure that they understand what's required for you to flow your goods. So do they apply the barcode labels properly? Do they pack your contents right in the boxes? Do they make your products the exact way you specified them? So we shine bright lights there, too, to make sure that your, your products and your supply chain are intact. And then the last one is really important as well, which is regulatory transparency. Um, you know, you're, you're doing business out of a country, and so you've got to be compliant with all the regulations in China or Malaysia or wherever you're buying from. And then you're entering into another country of commerce, whether it's, uh, you know, Germany or Canada or the USA. So transparency to all those regulatory requirements and making sure that you and your supplier are in compliance with those. So up until recently, it was very, very difficult to get transparency to all those things. With modern technology, it's relatively easy. So we can deploy things like mobile and video and multimedia and milestones. There's all kinds of tools now that we can put into place to make sure that all of those dark corners are exposed and that you're doing not only the right thing, but the most efficient thing to save uh, money and to possibly save some big hassles if you're not in compliance with social or regulatory. So now I am going to throw this question out to both of you. And you kind of touched on it, Leah. Um in the last question, but why do you think it's so important to have a show like the Trade Squad and so that we're debating the hot topics, that we're bringing them to light and we're putting different perspectives and different spins on it? Okay, I'll just jump in really quick because it's interesting. I just had, um, I was invited to a dinner party over the weekend and one of the women there is an investor in uh, some new AI technology that is being used for uh, supply chain and tracking of, of global shipments. And, you know, in the same uh, conversation, there was a discussion around blockchain's application to uh, the supply chain and what that will mean as it becomes a more recognized um, tool in the industry. So one of the things that I think is really exciting about a podcast like this is it's a field and an industry that's so dynamic and changing so frequently. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in this topic because there's a lot to keep up with. A lot is happening in this space. Absolutely. And just before Audrey jumps in on that, I'm going to agree with you because I took a call with um, a woman who reached out to me on LinkedIn, wanted to sort of, you know, just chat about supply chain. And she said that she's extremely overwhelmed by all the information that's out there, not only the information, but how fast everything is changing. And that was one of her questions to me. You know, how do you deal with that? 
And so I think you're right. I think we need, you know, programs. We need shows that are going to get right down to it. Audrey? Oh, I completely agree with that. And there's there's kind of a weird a weird space, you know, like we have, you know, media and newspapers and news shows that kind of cover, you know, they think they're covering these big trade issues and they get these people on their shows and you're like, have you ever filled out a NAFTA? Like, do you have any idea what the <laughs> trade agreement means for the person, you know, the importer or the exporter who's actually dealing with it? And I think um, the great piece about kind of social media and podcasts and you know, vlogging and these sorts of things is it gives a space for people um, who are kind of in it and doing it um, and also a space for women to have a voice. I think I'm, I'm really excited to be, to be putting this together with, with you and, you know, just actually having people who are working on the ground doing this. Um, and like, I'm, I'm not an expert in everything. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, maybe polished speaker or, you know, like some media star, but, you know, I think we, we have resources, we have experiences, we have connections and and we've built these networks. And I think if we can be helpful to, to, as Leah was saying, helpful to the people who have, you know, one person in their office, they're just getting started and they're looking for information, um, you know, then that's, that's going to be great for us if, if we can, you know, kind of be a source for that information and, and just offer a different perspective. Um, you know, as women, we have a, a kind of different perspective in, in our experiences and then, and in the, in our thought process maybe. And then, and then the three of us just professionally have different experiences kind of throughout our journeys and, and, you know, what's coming next for us. It's Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, as a supply chain professional, so what does that mean for me exactly? I mean, you've used a few technology terms and different things like that. But if I'm not kind of familiar with some of those terms, what does it mean for me? Why should I come to the FreightWaves website? Why should I look at the media side? Why should I take a look at the data side? Well, if you think about transportation uh, just broadly, you know, everything is about getting stuff faster more efficient, less prone to risks, uh, whether it's weather or claims issues or, or just uh, losing a freight or geopolitical issues or et cetera, all these things are impacting the freight market 24-7, 365. And so something that takes place in you know, a remote village in China or uh, take place on the high sea, or there's an issue with you know certain aircraft types, et cetera, that's going to have a significant impact um, down the line. It's that butterfly effect. And so our job at Freightways is to uh, bring context to the market. And we do that through our data uh, products, which we sell to companies to make better pricing decisions, to identify risks in their supply chain or identify risks in their transportation planning, uh, to make better pricing and economic decisions about their business. And then we bring context to it through our uh, website, our news product, uh, that it's uh, we're constantly looking at all of this data and trying to identify anything that is going to uh, bring a level of disruption or create risks for the folks in the in the industry. Okay, so because there's so much out there, right? I've I've been speaking to a couple of different supply chain professionals, and they're saying that they're getting a little bit overwhelmed because there's so much information and there's so many great things that they can tap into, but they just don't know where to start. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's correct. And I think what we're trying to do is, is streamline it because the issue that you pointed out is that, um, you know, logistics managers, traffic managers don't want more uh, screens open on their desktop. They don't need another source of data. They don't need more tracking. Um, or, and, or, or logins and passwords. Yeah, correct. And so <laughs> what we're doing is aggregating the data. So we're helping do a couple of things. One is make the data actionable. A lot of the sensor and IoT data that's out there um, is not easy for people to ingest into their systems because they all require separate APIs or, as you pointed out, separate passwords. And so we're, uh, through our product, our Sonar product, it basically aggregates that data and makes it easy for companies to ingest it through a consistent API pipe. Um, now, we're not doing the individual tracking, so we're not involved in the workflow tracking because those are driven predominantly by shippers. Uh, shipper, uh, a large shipper will determine who they want to use for visibility and tracking. Our job is to bring context to all of the data that is aggregated from all these different sources and help people interpret what's happening. You know, I, in saying that, too, I'm sure you've come across so many challenges. Um, you spoke yeah. about in your original business, you know, not being able to get into see manufacturers, not because they didn't have the time of day to see you, which is kind of what's happening right now, um, but for different reasons. <laughs> but, you know, being a technology startup in supply chain, there, what has been your biggest challenge and how did you overcome that? I think, you know, in an industry that is, is uh, quite traditional, um, you know, making a leap uh, into the technology world uh, doesn't just require trust in your vendor, but a lot of the time it requires change in your work processes. So we talk to our customers a lot about customer experience and about customer acquisition. So, you know, when, con- when customers adopt our solutions, it allows them to have their own branded solution and effectively give their customers the actual BCO shippers, the ability to have a pure digital transaction. So from um, from 24-7, 365 digital first pricing to one-click rebooking to a series of dashboards to manage your shipments. But a lot of the time, it requires a change in, in, um, in mindset. And I think for us, that has been the biggest challenge. We don't see ourselves as just a company that sells software. We like to really partner with our customers. And it's a real... Um, it's a real journey together. So there's a lot of a lot of work we do um, in terms of, of our own content. Like we published over a hundred pieces last year, including white papers, and we share a lot of content with our with our customers as well. So I think it's really around this mind mindset shift. Uh, besides getting the trust of your customers, I think there's a big change in the actual workflow. And a good example of that is around. Um, customer acquisition in the traditional freight world it's still a lot of people calling customers and going out and visiting them and um, and, and, and entertaining them but in the digital world you can acquire them digitally um, and you can monitor in real time actual behaviors with real time data um, and that brings a, a huge amount of it advantages obviously it's a lower cost of serve but it's also um, a one source of truth where you can actually see customer behavior and and build around that um, but again, that takes significant um, change effects in, our, in big organizations. So I think that has been our biggest challenge, uh, supporting our customers uh, as they've really accelerated their own digitization. 
are not equal. They are in different communities with different uh, consumer shopping uh, and buying patterns. So you have to come up with whatever the optimal assortment is uh, for different store clusters or store groups. Uh, and that is a very important decision. Uh, now, once that is there, uh, a big part of what we do day to day is to make sure that the, the products are on the shelves where they need to be. So we would uh, get point of sale data on behalf of our CPG manufacturers and supplier customers from uh, uh, these uh, uh, demand uh, 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 origination points, retail stores, and what have you. We in our systems here maintain a store level perpetual inventory. We have views into the warehouse inventories, uh, manufacturing facilities, and all that kind of a stuff. So we would then calculate replenishment orders, uh, uh, and we would send it to our customers' WMS systems for those orders to be processed and sent. Uh, so it is a in the now system, it is running the actual uh, supply chain or demand chain for uh, our customers. So that is what a typical customer journey looks like. Uh, so then, uh, so while the system is doing that uh, and handling it in a automated fashion, uh, our business users or human colleagues in the system, they log into Algo to see, okay, how well is my supply chain performing uh, today? You know, uh, how did how did things you know work out from a rear view perspective? But a lot more importantly, what is the future looking like? Uh, right. What is my prediction for what is coming my way? Is what what are my future predicted orders? Uh, my future predicted demand and that kind of a thing. Because based upon those predictions, then you have to take a bunch of actions to make sure that you are able to meet that future demand. That is what, as a turnkey software as a service shop, we do uh, day in and day out. That is what our uh, business is. We handle a very large number of transactions uh, uh, any given day, hundreds of millions of transactions or sometimes even over a billion transactions a day. And you will say, okay, Amjad, where does that number come from? So if you say, okay, if I share with you that our unique uh, product location combinations or SKU location combinations that we are handling in the systems is in tens of millions of unique SKU location combinations. And if we, for each one of those, we are doing our demand planning, demand forecasting, you know, replenishment, assortment, you know, whatever forward reverse logistics functions that we have to perform. And it is all at that item location level. And from there, we bottom up that those numbers add up to uh, very, very high numbers very quickly. Uh, but that is what uh, Sarah, a typical uh, customer uh, use case journey looks like. Andy Polk, which I think you know, uh, from FDRA, he sent in a question that says, I think a major issue, perhaps not discussed enough, are multiple blockchains. If each shipper or port has their own, it's like we are just digitizing the same transparency troubles with a slight improvement. Professionals shouldn't have to traverse four blockchains to get what they need. So are we going to see competition work together to actually solve issues? Or are we going to see what I call blockchain bureaucracy? And I kind of have that same question because if I have a blockchain and you have a blockchain, and somebody else has a blockchain, what does that mean? So I think to, to some effect, it might be the wrong question. 
um, in the sense that blockchain is a level of technology and we don't necessarily expect every company to run on one database. We don't expect every company to have one website. And so there will be multiple blockchains. There are, and they're going to each solve different problems. So your blockchain that's going to manage supply chain visibility is going to be very, very different than the blockchain where you're going to be recording social compliance information for traceability of your upstream um, second and third tier suppliers, which is going to be very different than the blockchain that you're using to do freight tra uh, financial transactions. Those are different purpose-built solutions on the same underlying tech stack. We use databases for all that stuff, and there will be distinct, narrow uses for blockchain that have real business problems, and those are going to be spread across different things. Now, it's the job of integration layers like Chain.io and TMSs and, and uh, WMSs and all the other software providers to make this accessible and usable. A user shouldn't have to traverse four blockchains, but a software may be calling four or six or 12 APIs to put one useful piece of information in a user's hands. And that's the responsibility of the software companies to solve that problem. And um, something that came up uh, a lot was cross-functional metrics. Can you explain a little bit of what that means? What is cross-functional metrics and why is it important to supply chain? Yeah, that's, I think that's a great question. So, so coming back to my analogy about, you know, the owl's, you know, ability to rotate their neck, right, or their head 270 degrees, I think supply chain is all about creating that integrated, extended view of the organization business processes. So, and, and in my view, one of the most challenging things in any organization is to break down internal functional silos. Uh, and I think right. this goes. And I think this goes back to even even early ages, right? And, and human behavior. I think mm -hmm. I think our brains. I think our brains have, have been trained to think vertically rather than horizontally, right? So, so let me explain a little bit more. So, most of the people get specialized in a certain process or function. Which is, which is great for, for some purposes, but you know, also makes things more difficult when it comes to connecting the dots from uh, beginning to end in a process. So, uh, so in my opinion, this is why we feel more comfortable with vertical rather than horizontal thinking, right? So now, from a supply chain management standpoint, I think we need to retrain our brain to think more horizontally. And this is you know, key for achieving uh, process success. Now, when it comes to cross-functional metrics, and for the same reason I explained before, I think a great way to break down internal silos is to change that vertical thinking approach uh, by implementing performance metrics that look at the entire picture. So mm -hmm. I've seen organizations dramatically changing their business performance by setting one or two cross-functional metrics touching everyone in the organization, such, such as, for instance, you know, uh, customer service levels, uh, mm -hmm. inventory returns, or cost to serve, as an example. Um, so, and you know, supply chain is a dynamic system. So, in fact, optimizing every step in the supply chain does not guarantee achieving, you know, an optimized result as a whole. So, in in, in my opinion, understanding the principle, this principle is key for implementing those uh, successful business processes. At the end of the day, you know, we want to learn from challenges and, and things that we've had on our journey, but then we also want to talk about the most inspiring parts. And I'm sure working at Allen, um, living your passion, sort of living that dream, 
you know, dealing with some of these really, really stressful situations can come some really inspire, like some inspiring stories and stuff. Can you, you know, share some of that with us? What has been the most inspiring part of your journey? Well, yeah, I, unfortunately, I see a lot of bad things that happen, I, you know, constantly watching the news and seeing what disaster is next. Um, but on the flip side of that, I also get to see the good that companies and people do in response to disaster, you know, whether that is um, something which may seem small to us, like loaning a forklift to a food bank, uh, to something huge like uh, donating a plane to take Ebola supply, you know, supplies to to the Ebola response back in, in 2014. Um, you know, so all of those things, I think what inspires me most is just people's desire um, to, to do good and to, to help. Um, and they, you know, they just really want to get engaged and make sure that, um, that they are leaving a legacy, whatever, whatever that means to them. Yeah. And probably that feeling of also being a part of something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, there's, there's no shortage of disasters. Um, so whether it's in your community or around the globe, um, there's a way to, to get involved and, you know, make sure that um, this global community uh, can get your support. So while we're on that topic, I know we're not, we're not done the interview at all, but um, do you want to let people know how they can get involved? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, anytime we're always online at uh, allenaid.org, www.allenaid.org. Um, but, you know, we have a form that says, hey, tell us how you want to help. Do you want to volunteer? Uh, do you want to offer you know, free services or expertise. Uh, there's always something, whether there's a, a major disaster happening or not. Uh, we work with nonprofits who are who are looking to get better. Right? They recognize that um, that they probably spend too much on logistics because they're not the experts. Um, and so we work with them. Uh, you know, we bring in volunteers who can help them do some optimization, and that's just. You know, that's just one way. It doesn't have to be a physical or financial contribution. It can really be your your expertise and your knowledge. So what kind of logistics assets do you have in Panama? And what, what can people really take a look at taking advantage of? Well, um, as I said, um, the canal, the Panama Canal is, of course, the main um, our main logistic asset, right? That the, 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 the Panama Canal gives us the unique advantage of having ships coming and going from all over the world on a daily basis. So the connectivity you, you can get here um, coming back and forth from everywhere is it's unique. So there is no other place that you can cross from one ocean to the other in very short period of time and, and having uh, availability of services because we, we receive a lot of um, uh, big ships, mother ships that came into here, they drop containers in here, and then feeder ships go to smaller markets to deliver and, 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 and also um, getting the old water route from Asia to the East Coast US uh, is also a great uh, advantage for us. So the canal, of course, will be the first uh, uh, asset the port system, uh, we have a, a world-class port system in Panama, two ports right now in the Pacific Ocean, and three 
ports working right now in the Atlantic Ocean and a fourth port in construction in the uh, in Atlantic Ocean. This complex of ports is what we call, uh, uh, that, that we say that Panama is a port with two oceans. Uh, and, the, and the reason we say that is because the distance between uh, one ocean to the other is very short. It's 50 miles only. Oh, wow. So you can move a yeah. So you can move a container in, uh, let's say, one hour from one side to the other. So it's very fast. And actually, I live in the uh, in the Pacific side and I work in the Atlantic side. So every day, two times a day, I do this uh, transcontinental <laughs> a trip <laughs> to go back and forth my house. So. Um, that's that's a very important uh, uh, asset for us. The, the the port system actually, Panama is currently the number one uh, port complex in uh, throughput containers in Latin America. So let's get back to Cocoa Pallet. Uh, there's a number of different benefits for using Cocoa Pallet. Why don't you tell us about those and what the impact is globally for us to go from wood pallets into you know Cocoa Pallets. Yeah, the so we, we started the pellet market like like how does it work? And we are a great advocate for like a promoter of like reusable pellets. If you can use a reusable pellet, whether it's plastic or wood, and if it's used uh, hundreds of times, uh, that's fantastic. But you know, for for export, usually it doesn't work because these pellets never return. They leave the, the pellet pool. So that's what we focus on. So on the single-use, one-way pallet, if it's from wood or uh, like the flimsy ones from wood. Because for an export port pallet, it just uh, it only matters. It's just be, it must be strong enough, and not more than that. Uh, compliant for export, like ISPM 15, so free of harmful insects and cheap. So that's the only market we focus on. And so what we do is we. We buy the waste from the pharma cooperatives in Indonesia, Philippines. Uh, otherwise, they burn these coconut husks. Because when the coconut falls from the tree, they take the, the coconut out and they sell that to the factory. So this goes on a truck. And because the husk is like just has no value for them, and there's just a lot of extra transportation, so it's very inefficient. So they just put it on a heap and they burn it. And so we prevent the coconuts being burned. Uh, we create value for the farmers. Then we make we uh, bring it to the factory. We mill them, we dry it, and we press it into our newly developed molds. And so we provide cheap pellets. They're cheaper than the wooden pellets. So you also prevent trees being cut and shipped to Asia for single-use pellets. So our message is like keep the trees in the forest in New Zealand or Canada, because Canada supplies a lot of wood to uh, to Asia. And or make like furniture from these uh, or houses from the, from the wood, and th th that's a smart way of using our resources and using uh, this this valuable wood for only a few weeks and then waste it. That's not that's not smart. And but the great thing is that these pellets are cheap, cheaper than the wood pellets. But when they arrive in 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 the Americas, for example, then you can just collect them, mill them to small pieces, and, and use them as soil improver. It actually has like a, also a value, like, a, like let's say, four or $500 per ton. So the importers oh, wow. have like a circular product, uh, which brings them money instead of cost them money. 
Absolutely. So we just spoke about one of the, I guess, maybe one of the top reasons why people should gain control over their returns. Do you have any other um, examples or reasons why they need to take control over it? And I'm sure cost is a big factor in that. Yeah, correct. And and I just to qualify a little bit more on the cost, I, I think one of the reasons why I think folks have to focus on it, because often it's seen as a hidden or even a cost to play or uh, the ante to be in the game. But in reality, you can really drive a lot of improvements and control over those costs. So that's one thing I want to make sure your listeners understand, because we've seen great gains with uh, our clients in that front. The second point, and it may may seem obvious to most, but it uh, is definitely driving the trend in the industry. As product shifts to more of an online, even if you're a brick and mortar and some of your volume is shifting to online, your return rates are typically, we see return rates that are averaging five times what you'd see in the store. So if, if you have your, your e-commerce uh, percentage of your sales is going from two to 20 and on those returns is going from one to five X, you can understand that your requirement for cost and infrastructure and technology to handle those returns are going up exponentially as well. And then, then the last point I'll make is that it's just critical for the consumer experience. You know, we've done a number of studies and, you know, those studies show us that 72% of those surveyed uh, state that the returns process will influence their future purchase. And then even 92% say if, if they have a great experience, they are likely to shop again. So the returns experience is actually driving additional, uh, additional volume through your network. There was absolutely a lot of challenges there. You know, I think the biggest, especially for raising capital or being in those situations where you're trying to get people to believe in you and either invest or be the first customer is I think that you face, I always felt that I faced it because of my age, but of course it was also my gender. Um, So you get a bit of a credibility gap where you don't look and sound and feel like the people you're pitching to. And so they have a hard time with trust, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not, it's happening at the subconscious level. So it's, it can be very hard to, it can be very hard to overcome that sometimes. So, you know, a lot of these studies now about entrepreneurs raising early stage capital shows that, you know, most of the decision is based most of the decision-making process that the investor goes through is based on deciding whether or not that they think that entrepreneur will make it. Right. Do they have the grit, the perseverance, the brains, and the ability to influence clients? Now, at a very early stage, there aren't too many of their data points except the entrepreneur themselves. And mm-hmm. what studies are also showing is that most investors tend to want to invest in people that remind them of themselves. Maybe they remind huh. them of themselves when they were younger. And right. if most investors are men, probably 99% of major angel investments, somebody with the capacity to put in a check of at least 250 personally, um, most of them are men. Mm-hmm. And how, how could they ever see themselves in this you know, young, energetic woman with a different sort of upbringing or background that maybe spoke differently or acted a little bit differently? And so I just think that there's a bit of a subconscious bias that is hard to well, look if you're a woman and there's a subconscious bias against women, it's impossible to change that. And so mm-hmm. I, I think I had a little bit of a hard knocks um, upbringing, especially from my mother. 
where it, there was, you know, no excuses were kind of allowed. And yeah. I'm not saying it's an excuse, but I, I think I was brought up in this environment where I wasn't allowed to say, well, I didn't do it because, or there's no way that I'll be successful because, or any of those things. And so I look back at some of the conversations I had with them and they would immediately shut me down if I ever inclined, if I ever insinuated that that was a reason I couldn't pitch or couldn't. And so I think I was lucky to have a bit of that, that upbringing where I, I was always told that that didn't matter. Um, and so how I overcame it, I, I have no idea. I remember there being a lot of really hard, hard situations. I had some particularly hard situations with women though. I mean, I had women in decision-making roles that uh, I heard that when I left the meeting, you know, they made fun of me. They called um, my company the eyelash batting business at one point, And that person was a real decision maker within a real serious client that was going to be very important to us. So um, I also had issues with women. So I think that no matter what, when you're doing something differently, if you're a woman or a man or you're older or young or you look different or a different race or you have a disability or you just maybe you're a bit strange, I don't know. But if you have, if you're doing something differently, you're probably not going to look and sound and smell and say the same thing as every single person right. that you're going to pitch. And so, and in fact, the likeliness is higher that you might think a little differently as a minimum. So my point is you're always going to be exposed. You're always going yeah. to be made fun of. There's always something that you could feel insecure about going into a meeting. I mean, you can take this argument to the absolute extreme. So I would say there's a few things. There's one, just being a woman in business. We'll just park that as like, that's a whole big conversation. But we are talking about innovation today. And there's a whole nother conversation around, um, yes, it's hard to be a woman and to pitch and to raise money and get customers. But I think it's hard to do that anyways. And yeah, it is. Yeah. There's also, there's also some advantages that you have to acknowledge as a woman, right? You do look and sound a little different you do appeal to people in a different way you you have other advantages where maybe you're less bullish on certain things you know investors are starting to see that women are more conservative and they tend to beat their numbers more often than men when they invest in them and so there's also advantages um to being a woman so it's a really long roundabout way to just say that there was obviously a lot of roadblocks there was obviously moments where I wanted to give up, where I heard rumors of things, people bad-mouthing me from men and women or saying, you know, she's crazy or she'll never make it or any of those kind of things. So um, obviously all that stuff happened. How I overcame it, I, I, because I had raised some money from family, friends, and angel investors, and, you know, you know this very well, Sarah, it's like once you start, you, you just don't have an option. You don't, right. you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'm so sad, I'm going to quit. Started thousands of years ago, a shortcut. Take a list you know, link it to the list you're learning. It takes less time. Another tip they didn't know. You only remember 10% of what you read, but 90% of what you say and do. So we're going to say and do this together with our audience so they all learn it because it's actually a very powerful tool. Okay. So I'm going to bet you and our audience can count to 10. I think I'm on safe ground yeah, here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We're going to use the 10 numbers as a list to learn okay. 10 things. The first thing is a one. It's a pole. A pole looks like a one, a big flag pole or yeah. a lamp pole. So when I say one, you say pole. Ready? One. Pole. Perfect. You're getting smarter. <laughs> I can two, feel it. <laughs> two, 
You do it. Two is shoes. How many shoes do you normally put on? Two. So two is? Shoes. One. One is pole. Perfect. Three. Tricycle. Okay. How many wheels are on a tricycle? Three. What's three? Tricycle. Two. Shoes. One. Pole. Perfect. Getting smarter still. Four is a car. How many tires on a car? Four. So what's four? Car. Two. Go to two. Shoes. One. Pole. Three. Tricycle. Ooh, jumping. It makes no difference. Your brain's learning. Five is a glove. How many fingers in a glove? Five. What's five? A glove. Three. Tricycle. One. Pole. Getting easier now. I just want to start by saying that 2019 has been an amazing year and I could have not done this without you. Our listeners, our sponsors, our community who support us every single day with a download, a comment, a like, a share, and who believe in what we are doing and trust us to tell the stories that impact supply chain every single day. Thank you so much for myself and the team here at Let's Talk Supply Chain. We cannot wait to see what is in store for us in 2020 as we have big plans and hope that you will be there for the ride. Next week, we kickstart 2020 with a woman in supply chain episode with one of my favorite people in supply chain, Holly Qualman. She speaks authentically about her journey, gives us glimpses of what it is like to be a career woman and single mom all at the same time. And I might be biased, but it is truly one to listen to and be inspired. If you'd like to support the show, remember there's a few ways to do that subscribe to us on the newsletter at letstalksupplychain.com over on youtube subscribe to the sc supply chain tv subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us follow us on linkedin twitter and instagram next go to ships that's shipz.com so you will be one of the first to know once we have launched our platform if you're a freight forwarder or a mid-market shipper uh, you want to be on this platform so make sure that you subscribe and we will reach out to you as soon as we are ready next if you've got a supply chain professional in your life go and check out shop under let's talk supply for merch uh, supply chain dictionaries if you want to know the definitions the acronyms we have 107 pages on our supply chain dictionary last go and rate and review the show on iTunes and you will be featured on an upcoming episode. Thank you everyone for all your love and support. Have a great New Year's and we will see you in 2020. Remember everybody, ship happens.